Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Welcome, have your seat. Glad you guys are here. Let me warn you, it's PG-16 tonight. It may even be PG-17, I'm just saying, all right? Our couple is going to get married, and you know what you do when you get married, and it happens here in the Bible. So we're going to walk through it. Uh, (laughs) um, If you're sitting close to someone that, like, you're not married to yet, Tony and Melissa, just go ahead and separate just a little bit more. Tony, maybe go, maybe Chloe, you, you guys are married, so you sit in between them. That would probably be the best thing. Oh, Hannah and Jordan are here. We're so thankful to see you guys. So grateful for what the Lord's doing in your life. Um, so we are just stoked. We're going to be in Song of Solomon chapter 3 tonight. They're going to get married. Song of Solomon chapter 3. Um, how many have been enjoying this? I mean, you're back. So, of course, you, uh, yeah, <laughs> Pastor Pat's like, yep, I'm enjoying it. Uh, it's been fun to be able to be here on Sunday nights with you. Um, and especially as we get into this chapter, I do want to, in sincerity, say the Bible is going to poetically describe um, the the gift of intimacy to us tonight. So I do want to express that to us as we walk through and into, let's not be embarrassed, it's the word of God. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. And if you're not married, you're not driving home together tonight. You're getting a ride with someone else. Let all of our unmarried couples say, Okay, Corey, I didn't hear you. (laughs) All right, Song of Solomon, chapter 3. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We really need to pray tonight. Lord, I've had a lot of caffeine, Jesus, and um, I'm excited about this class and excited about this study. So I just pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that ministers to couples and those getting about to get married. And if we're still in waiting, just here to study the word of God. So Jesus, speak to us, I pray in your name. Amen. You remember what happened last week? They were about to do something that they shouldn't do prior to marriage. The first time it happened, they were in a forest, that little picnic going on, and uh, things got a little carried away, and he was speaking into her life, and the next thing you know, she's in his shade, and there's all kind of things that are happening. And then in this next scene, she's thinking about him through the night, and all of a sudden she gets up and she is ready to go, grabs him, rips off his shirt, takes him into his mother's chamber where she was conceived, what's on her mind, and then all of a sudden she wakes up and realizes, whoa, do not stir or awaken love until it pleases. Now, I ask you to turn to Solomon chapter 3. 
three, but we're going to go ahead and go to our famous verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Go there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we want to read this verse one more time. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll pick it up there in verse 1. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Now, remember, there are four letters back and forth from the Corinthian church, and we only have the second letter and the the fourth letter. So there was a letter that went to Paul and they asked him some questions about relationships. And he says, concerning the things you wrote to me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Let all of our single men say, (laughs) you know what, Corey, that's redemption. You're the only one that said it with, with conviction. Okay. Say with me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, Jocelyn, you don't have to say it. I'm asking the men to say it, okay? Oh, just you. Okay, good. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. All right, gang, listen up. Long-term engagements are dangerous. They're dangerous. And if you're engaged and you're getting into like a five-year engagement, it's one of those things where it is very dangerous because there is a intimacy that is happening in communication. There's an intimacy that's happening in relationship. You've already shared your heart. And let me express, there will never be enough money to get married in our culture. So if you're waiting to get married and you're in love with this woman, there will truly never be enough money because you can have a $5,000 wedding God bless you if you can figure that out. Or you can have a $50,000 or a $100,000 wedding. Really, in sincerity, we need to recognize the wedding has become a cultural fiasco because we spend, I told all my girls, take the money and run. Elope. I'll give you the cash and make a down payment on a house. And so there's a truth about our culture that we spend so much thinking about a wedding, just an event that we don't consider the marriage. Paul says, listen, if you're in love and you guys have this intimate connection and it's starting to get all touchy-feely and you've got Russian hands and Roman fingers and now all of a sudden you become international, it's time for you to get married. Let the single men say. (laughs) We've got to be responsible with love. You see, the big word that people in our culture struggle with is the word commitment. Commitment. The big C is a big problem with men. The other thing that I want to encourage you in in your engagement is to involve your spiritual family. Don't isolate from the church. Involve your spiritual family. Maybe your spiritual family is even your own mom and dad, where they're a part of this premarital relationship. Let me encourage you, participate in premarital counseling. Get engaged with a couple that you can 
have for the rest of your life together, an older couple that's been married 25 or more years, that when you are married and you're after your honeymoon period of three months, you've got that wife to call or that husband to call and say, he doesn't pick up his dirty underwear. What do I do? And she might say, wash them. You see, the understanding is you want to, in this premarital relationship, have accountability around you. Now, before we go any further, I want to talk a little bit about the Jewish marriage because Solomon is, go- is Jewish and there is a Jewish marriage context that we need to understand because it very much relates to Christ. You see, there is a contract that is signed between the groom and the father-in-law. This contract is given by a dowry. Now, it's amazing that Jesus, the Holy Spirit would say that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, that we were bought at a price. Now, you guys know as missionary in Liberia, the dowries in Liberia, they are hilarious, but they're not hilarious. They're sad. And the husband, the groom, and the bride will meet with the parents. And the whole meeting is about the paying of what they call 10 cent. And so they will give this 10 cent in order to engage uh, the bride. But... There's also a dowry attached to it. So what they do is they whittle down the dowry. And you sit there and the bride's parents will say to the groom's parents, they'll grab his arm and they'll go, look at him. He's useless. There's nothing that he can do for this woman. And then they will look at her and go, well, look at her. She's the most pitiful example of a woman you've ever met in your life. And you're sitting there listening to the parents berate the groom and berate the bride. And all they're trying to do is take the dowry down. Can you imagine if we did that in the United States of America? It'd be like, well, she is just ugly. I can't believe you want to marry her. I mean, it's like, are you serious? This is what happens. It's really what happens. But in our culture, we don't have a dowry. The closest thing that we have to it maybe is a engagement ring. Okay. And that could be maybe a reminiscence of a dowry. But in the Jewish wedding, there's a dowry. Then the groom leaves. The groom leaves. He goes and he builds a piece, adds on a piece to his father's house. That's what he did. That's what they did. They just increased the, the rooms that were in the father's house. It still happens in Israel today. They just don't build this way. They build up. We call them vertical villages. The father will leave rebar up above his house so that his son, when he gets married, can add to the rebar and then they can just keep building. And then the son will leave rebar for the grandson so the grandson can be building. And you'll see these buildings that are eight uh, stories high and you know great, great granddad's at the bottom and then the great, great grandson is all the way at the top. It's just how they continue to do it. Now, then there is, the groom goes, okay, it's time. The house is built. What did Jesus say? In my father's house are many matches. I go to prepare a place for you. And then he will come for his bride, the church, with the trumpet call. Well, the groom would show up and he would come with this entourage of people. And the entourage, the bride would have to get ready and the bride would have to then go with the groom. Now, here's the weird part about a Jewish wedding. Once they showed up, they would go into a special room and (laughs) did you catch that? Okay. They would move from the contract to the consummation. 
Now, here's even something weirder. Then the groom would come out with the sheet and go, we did it. And then everybody would celebrate. Weird, okay? Then they would celebrate. Well, listen to um, what John the Baptist said in the understanding of this Jewish culture. John chapter 3, I'll read it for you. John chapter 3, remember, John the Baptist is Jewish. John chapter 3, verse 29. John 3, verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. What he's talking about is possibly the seven-day celebration after the consummation, after the contract. So all of this takes place with Solomon. Now let's go back to Song of Solomon. Now that we have a a basis understanding of a Jewish wedding. And I want you to take a look before we read verse 6. Would you take a look at verse 11? Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him. On the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. Solomon and his lady have realized we're getting too touchy-feely. I love you, you love me, let's just get married. And that's exactly what they do. Now, ladies, listen carefully. Listen carefully, ladies. We are about to read the woman's journal as to what she thinks about the man that she's about to marry. And every bride in here should think these five things about the man that they are about to marry. And everybody at your wedding should think these things about the man that you are about to marry. These are what I call the five G's of a groom. The five G's of a groom. Take a look. Chapter three, verse six. Who is this coming out of the wilderness? Like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants' fragrant powders. If you write and take a note, she sees her man, and he, she says, who is this pillar of smoke? Well, that should remind you of something immediately. Because when the children of Israel were taken out of Egypt in order to keep them warm through the night, God had a pillar of fire in the center of the camp. And so what she's saying is this, my man looks like God. He is godly. And he has a fragrance of God. Are you surprised that his fragrance is myrrh and frankincense? This man has been crushed. This man, like myrrh, myrrh is crushed before the fragrance is released. Myrrh and frankincense should remind us of the heart of Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Bible says, we're the fragrance. We're the aroma of Christ. When we pass by a room, people should have a smell, an understanding that Christ is is there in the room and she's looking at her man and she says, my man is godly. Now take a look what else she says in verse seven. Behold, surprise, it's Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it of of the valiant of Israel. 
They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. Gentlemen, if you're taking note, listen, ladies, he is guarding. He's a protector. He's a guard. She feels safe. She feels secure. She knows that this guy is sober-minded. He's not mental and emotional where what, you don't know what you're coming home to. You have no idea where he's going to be. He doesn't fly off the handle. No, this guy is safe. This guy is secure, and he's surrounded with protection. He's got friends with him who have swords strapped on him. Now, we know what a sword is. A sword is the word of God. We have to understand this man knows the word of God and he's putting the word of God in action and the people that he hangs around, they're godly as well. Now, ladies, let me tell you something. If you want to get to know who your man is, look at his friends. Look at his friends. And if they are safe and secure, they're going to encourage him to be safe and secure. But if they're fly by the seat of their pants and do whatever comes to them by their gut, be very, very careful. But this guy, he's guarding. Take a look at verse 9. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king, and maybe you'll understand this, maybe you'll underline this, made himself a palaquin. Now, do you guys know what a palaquin is? A palaquin is, it's got two poles. There's a chair in the middle of it. And the king sits in the chair and the people lift it up, put it on their shoulders, and then walk with the king. You've probably seen it like the Prince of Persia or something like that. One of those movies where old-fashioned and the king is sitting in the chair and they're marching like this and they're holding the chair. But there's something I want you to see about this guy. Solomon is the king and the Bible says here in verse 9, he made it himself. Gentlemen, ladies, listen carefully. It's our third G. Your man should have a go get em attitude. Your man should have an ambition. Your man should have goals. Your man should, you should see him, who, someone who is willing, who knows a task and he gets the task done. He's got a go get em attitude. Solomon made this himself for his wedding day. Solomon worked hard on this. Now I want you to see what he worked and what he worked with. And there's a reason why he worked with this material. Take a look at verse 10. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seed of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 10, number 4. Let me tell you something, ladies, listen carefully. He better have gold. He better have gold. Don't marry a man who's broke. Now you might be saying, listen, you might be saying, well, no, love will get us through. No, it won't. Love don't pay rent. Love does not pay rent. When I do premaritals, I make the men, I make the men that I am doing a premarital with save $5,000 before I, I get behind that pulpit and let them say I do. Because what it does is it gives a woman safety and security. That $5,000 pays first, last, and security, and all your deposits for electric, for gas, and for everything else. Understand there is something about a man who saves his money that is very important in this culture and in our culture. Solomon's got money. Look at the materials that he used. And let me tell you something. There's nothing wrong with having money in the bank. Money is not the problem. 
It's the love of money that is the problem. And if you are about to marry a man that doesn't have any money, let me tell you something. Money is one of the greatest causes of conflict in marriage. And if you've got a man that doesn't know how to save money, doesn't know how to prepare for the future, trust me, when you want to buy those new shoes to go to your best friend's wedding and he says, we can't, God bless you. <laughs> you see, I'm sorry, I was going to say something that I decided not to. I'll say it. Look at verse 10. Its interior is paved with love. If you truly love the woman that you're about to marry, you will discipline yourself when it comes to finances. That's what I'm trying to get across. You see, boys love toys. Boys love toys. The only problem with our toys is that as we get older, they get more expensive. When I was younger, it was Legos. Then it became surfboards. And now I'm contemplating buying a 1965 convertible Mustang so that I can rebuild it and just let it sit in my garage, okay? Understand, like, there's something about boys and toys that we have got to discipline ourselves and purpose to put and save money in the bank. You can't live off of love alone. And true love will purpose to save some gold. Take a look at the next one, verse 11. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. Let me tell you something. She is grateful to be marrying this man. Did you see my man? There he is. She's proud of him. She wants the world. Everybody, look at my man. He is godly. He is guarding. He's got a go get him attitude. He's got gold in the bank. Look what he made his whole chair of. I mean, this guy is my guy, and he's got a, such a great relationship with his mom. Now, that's important. When he comes and complains about his parents to you, know that he will go to someone and complain about you to them. A relationship with our parents is what prepares us for a marriage relationship. It's the way of God. The way of God is that we're born into a mom and a dad. Now, I know that there are single moms and there are single dads, and I understand the context of our culture, but the way of God is that we're born into a family, and if we only have a single mom, then single moms, we've got to get a dad-like person into this person's life. I'm not telling you to go and marry anybody. I'm saying here at the church, there's a spiritual family that you can participate with to give you what you're lacking in your home, and as they learn those things and build relationship with the family, you are training them to have a successful marriage and training them to have a successful family. Now, this godly groom, this godly groom is about to be given his gift. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. So go ahead, husbands, look at your wife and say, you're a good thing. Go ahead, say it. Go ahead and give a little wink. There you go. Good job. 
All right, you want to give a little kiss? Go for it, Tony. Stay away. You're not married yet. You're not married yet. I said, will be. No, she is a good thing, but I just don't want you that close. Okay. (laughs) God bless them. I'm doing their premarital, so I know everything. All right. I love those guys. They're doing it so right. Now, this groom, this godly groom, is about to open the gift that God has given him. He is about to know his wife. Now, you may want to take out the little money envelope and begin fanning yourself because it's about to happen, okay? And and listen, I know at this point, every time I teach Song of Solomon, I know at this point, no one will look at me. So if you just want to put your head down now, it's okay. But he's about to know, listen to this word, know his wife. Do you know that the word sex is not found in the Bible? The word that God uses so poetically, and Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. The word that God chooses to implore is the word knowledge. Sex is a worldly term. It's not found in the Greek. It's not found in the Hebrew. What is found there is the word knowledge. Now, God has given us this knowledge for several reasons. He has given us the knowledge of intimacy so that we can be fruitful and multiply. Malachi exhorts that we should raise godly children. But there's another reason for this intimacy. You see, the reason he's given us the knowledge of intimacy is a physical act that allows the two to become one. There's a fruitful and multiply, but it's not just about procreation. It's about intimacy of a physical act of becoming one. But also, let's go back to our 1 Corinthians verse. I want you to see something in chapter 7. It's so important that we see this before we dig into this moment with this married couple. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to pick it up now in verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, now in verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Let's dissect that a little bit. Because this word render, it means indebted to give. You owe it to the person. When we make a marriage vow commitment, we owe it to our spouse to provide affection. Did you hear that? When we say I do, ladies, there's no rolling over, I got a headache. Because ladies tend to use knowledge to control. So the only time in a marriage bed, you can read it for yourself in 1 Corinthians 7. The only time in a marriage bed that sex or the knowledge of intimacy is to not be had is when both agree not to. There's a self-sacrifice that's involved and engaged. In fact, let's read it together so that we can see this so true. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. 
And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive, listen to the scripture, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. In other words, consent that you both agree that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and then come together again, listen carefully, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul says it takes consent for this knowledge of intimacy. And whether we choose to or not to, you are now one and you both must make the decision together. Render. It's an agreement that you make when you say I do. Now the next word is affection. The word is affection. Now let me give you an understanding and that's why most theologians believe that Paul was married and his wife left him because in order to be a Pharisee you had to be married to be in the Sanhedrin. So most theologians believe that his knowledge of marriage came from the fact that he was married and that his wife left him because he decided to follow Christ and she wanted nothing to do with it. And so he says, render to your wife the affection. This word, and maybe you're taking note, means to give pleasure. To give pleasure. So the essence of this union between a husband and wife is to bless each other. It is not selfish. It is selfless. It is not selfish. It is selfless. And we're going to see that in our moment Right now, PG-16, Song of Solomon, go there with me if you would, chapter 4. Here we go. Behold, you are fair, my love. My love is his pet name for her, and we're going to see him call her this throughout the rest of the book of Solomon. Behold, you are fair, my love. Now, I find it amazing um, I always, I, 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 it's so hilarious to me. Couples will get married, then they go on their honeymoon, and then all of a sudden their names change. Hey, baby, sweetie, honey. Well, the one I don't understand is pumpkin. Like, why would you call your spouse a very large orange vegetable? Like, hello, pumpkin. Like, that blows my mind. He has a very wonderful pet name for her, and it's not pumpkin. It is, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair, or you are absolutely beautiful. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Now, once again, I don't know if you want to look at your spouse and go, oh, your eyes look like a bird. <laughs> tweet, tweet. It's just not going to go over well. What he is saying to her is, you are so peaceful. You just bring me so much joy. Like when I see you, it's just, I'm just looking straight in your eyes and I'm just mesmerized by your eyes behind your veil. Oh, what's happening? Your hair is like a flock of goats coming down from Mount Gilead. Now, this must have been romantic at this time. I don't know if you want to do this when you are in your honeymoon night and go, hey, babe, your hair looks like goats. I don't think it's going to go over well, but I want you to see what's happening. First, he sees her behind the veil. Then he takes the veil off and her hair falls down. Oh, 
Your hair. I need to tell you something. What? It's the Bible. (laughs) In the Middle East, Muslims did not bring hair coverings to the Middle East. Hair is the sex symbol in the Middle East. Much like we go to the beach and women are in bikinis, right? And it's like, wow, they want to show their body. In the Middle East, if you show your hair, it's like being in a bikini. So she's got her hair covered. And he, for the first time, whoa, it's like goats, babe. (laughs) Bah, like, uh. This is the first time he's seeing her hair. Now, this is a powerful truth. And I need to tell you why this is so powerful. Because there's a prostitute. And she comes to Simon the Pharisee's house. And she don't care that she's in a group of men. And Jesus don't care what anyone is thinking. And she drops at the feet of Jesus. And she takes her veil off. Now all the Pharisees are thinking, what has Jesus been doing with this woman? And she drops her hair down on the feet of Jesus. And she washes his feet with her tears and her hair. Here's what that woman is doing. I am surrendering to you the very thing that I have used to survive as a prostitute. I'm giving you my life. And when he takes off this veil, something happens in him that he, and then look at verse two. And I'm going to read it the way it should be read. Wow, you got teeth. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing. Every single one of them bears twins and none is barren among them. In other words, you got all your teeth. (laughs) Now, you guys, this was a big deal. They didn't have dentists. They were pulling their teeth one way. I mean, it would be like... (laughs) I do. (laughs) Listen, I don't know if you've ever seen the YouTube where the the woman doesn't have front teeth, but the groom doesn't know. And so she's like, I promise to give you. And then all of a sudden her dentures fall out and the groom's like, "Ah!" (laughs) I've never seen it before, ever. Now I need to tell you a secret about my daughters, okay? My oldest daughter, Abigail, was running through our house in the Bahamas and she was wet and it was all tile. So when she was running, she slipped and bit the cement wall and both of her teeth knocked right out. Her sister started laughing hysterically at her and said, you will never get married. (laughs) You look so ugly. (laughs) It was hilarious. 
The next day, that daughter decided, I want to pretend to be blind. So she went swimming in the pool the very next day, and she pretended to be blind. She's swimming in the pool, and she bit the wall on the pool and lost her two front teeth. So Abigail, my oldest daughter, looked at her and goes, look who ain't getting married now. One day, I got a call when my daughter was 17 years old, and she's in high school, okay? Now, we went to the dentist. We got her new teeth, like the whole deal. I get a call. She's a senior in high school. Dad. I'm like, who is this? She goes, it's Abby. I said, what's wrong? You have to call me in. I go, why? My teeth fell out. <laughs> I go, sweetie, just stay at school. It'll build your confidence. Dad, please, I can't go to the desert. <laughs> this is not funny. We're a sick family. Her hair falls down, and this is what she does. And he goes, you got teeth. Verse 3. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. She got a big head. <laughs> I mean, just imagine. It's like he's, he's taken off the veil. He's coming down her face like this. Well, actually like this. <laughs> this, this is a significant woman. And he rubs his hand on her lips. Now take a look at verse 4. Your neck is like the Tower of David. (laughs) Okay, she's got one of those necks that's got like the chains that keep growing on. I mean, this is a significant woman. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Let me tell you what she's saying. Now, we don't live in a third world country, okay? But let me tell you something about people that live in another country beside us. They carry everything on their head. And I'll never forget, I was traveling through the jungle, and there was a man holding a 100-pound bag of rice on his head and a 100-pound bag of rice on his back. And he's just going, just like this. His wife has got a 100-pound bag of rice on her head with a baby on her back, and she's just going like this. They took half of the bag of rice out for me and put 50 pounds on my head, and I'm like this the whole, the whole way trying to make it. I couldn't move my neck for three weeks after 50 pounds of rice. What he's saying to her is, you're a Proverbs 31 woman. You're a hard worker. And I commend you for that. You've been carrying water on your head a long time serving your family. This woman is a powerful woman. Verse 5. What I want you to see before we read verse 5. He is romancing her. He's undressing her. And it's important, gentlemen that your wife is romanced. Because Gary Smalley says it best. Men are microwaves 
and women are crockpots. Men, you press a button. Bing! Ready? (laughs) Women, turn up the heat. It takes a long time for that pot roast to cook. It's the Bible. Men are microwaves and women are crockpots, and he knows that. So he takes off the veil. She smiles. He rubs her face and her lips and now her neck. And he reaches behind and take a look at verse 5. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Wow. <laughs> he don't know what to say, but her dress has dropped. And now he realizes why Adam named Eve, whoa, man, he's just overwhelmed. And what the Bible is expressing in verse 5 is that she is becoming aroused. I'm a hunter, and when a doe gives birth to two fawns, you usually don't see them if they're in tall grass. But then all of a sudden, when you make a little bit of noise, you will see two little heads go up like this. And what he's saying is, she is starting to respond to his romance. That she is starting to build inside of her something that is arousing her. So he continues to undress her. Take a look at verse 6. You guys, this is Bible, so don't look at me. (laughs) Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go down my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Let me tell you what he says. Whoa! He says, we can do this all night long. I can come back to the mountain over and over and over and over again. You see, the beauty of doing it right in a premarital relationship, there's a benefit in the marriage. When you choose to honor God premaritally, he honors you in the marital relationship. If you choose to fornicate, and this word's a great protection, I told you before. When he goes to put his arm around you and that hand goes a little bit too low, you look at him and say, are you trying to fornicate with me? Because that word is like throwing cold water on him. But when you lead your girlfriend down the road of premarital sex, you are teaching her to rebel against God. And that's discipleship. And it's all fun before the, mar- the wedding. It's adventurous. But you've instilled something in her by your leadership. And before the wedding, it's adventurous, it's exciting and fun. 
But rebellion in marriage is not fun. It looks like a wife who will not respect her husband and a husband who does not love his wife because it's the same rebellion. One is fun, but it's actually just a hook to catch you for a very poor foundation of a marriage. Chapter 4, let's take a look at verse 7. The Bible goes, and what we're going to do in verse 7, we're going to take a little commercial break because it's a little hot and heated in here, and I feel like we need to breathe a little bit. Everyone take a breath. Okay, here we go. Verse 7, a little commercial break. You are all fair, my love. There's no spot on you. The moment has happened, and now they're lying there. He is looking at her, and he is saying, you are the most beautiful woman in the world. Now, the reason I wanted to take a little commercial break, because he says to her, there's no spot on you. But that's not necessarily true. Do you remember the first date? They almost did it on the first date. Do you remember the last date? They almost did it on the last date. But he looks at her and he says, there's no spot. Let me tell you why. Their relationship has been redeemed. And that's important for everyone in this room to hear. It's so important to know that Jesus sees us the same way that this man saw his bride. Because as the bride of Christ, it is his righteousness that we put on. We put on his purity when we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when Jesus looks at us, he says to the purified church, because of his righteousness, there is no spot on you. Your sexual history can be wiped clean by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And when God looks at you, he says, there's no spot. Now in chapter 4, verse 8, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon, look from the top of Amana, from the top of Senor and Hermon, from the lion's den, from the mountains of the leopards. What he's saying is, I feel like I'm on top of the world. Oh, the beauty of redemption. God removes all guilt and shame. He purifies us and makes us virgin pure to enjoy the act of intimacy. There is no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. When God offers the newness of life, he means it. And all of the history that you've had before, when you come into a Christian relationship, God can make it as if it's the only relationship you've ever had. So much so, would you take a look at chapter 4, verse 9? You've ravished my heart. Look at the love. My sister, my spouse, you've ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse? How much more better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes and all spices? Your lips, oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garment is like the fragrance of Lebanon. He is absolutely enthralled with this woman in the bed with him. They're totally in love. The word is ravished. He's totally enraptured in this moment. 
This is the greatest benefit to waiting. This is the greatest benefit to doing it God's way primarily. Choosing to wait will truly renew your strength. Choosing to wait will cause you to fly in the heights of eagles in marriage because I want you to see the way that he views this woman. He says, I'm ravished by you, my sister, my spouse. Now, this isn't weird. He didn't marry his family. What he's saying is this. I know you're God's first, you're mine second. So I'm going to honor you as the daughter of God, even in our marriage bed. You are God's first, and then you're mine. And I need you to see what the Bible is explaining is the joy of intimacy in marriage. He looks at her because intimacy is visually pleasing. He he touches her and and she smells the cologne he's got on because in marriage, the joy of intimacy is sensually pleasing. And in marriage, they're French kissing. Read it. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Whoa. The tongue is out. And they are going at it. But I need to remind you, it's pleasing for marriage. So ladies, if you're giving him the visual now by what you wear, can you wait for marriage? Gentlemen, if you're trying to put it out there, can you wait for marriage? And can I point something out? There are certain touches, there are certain looks, and French kissing, according to the Bible, are reserved for marriage. It's reserved for marriage. The only time French kissing is mentioned, these certain looks and these certain touches, it's for marriage. Why? Because there should be a desire, not how far is too far, there should be a desire for physical and spiritual purity before marriage. Would you take a look at verse 12? A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. He's saying to her, you're pure. He's saying to her, we waited. He's saying to her, you didn't allow anything to affect your purity. And I know that that is true. They are consummating the marriage at the great Jewish wedding feast. And they're able to walk out and say, we did it the right way. And everyone gets to celebrate. And so the Apostle Paul gives us a way to do that. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're almost done. Second Timothy chapter two. Second Timothy chapter two. Verse twenty-two. Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-two. Listen, ladies and men, flee also youthful lust. Get out of there. 
Don't stay. Walk away. Drive away. Flee also youthful lust, but pursue. The quickest way to be pure is to pursue certain things. Pursue righteousness. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue peace with those who call on the Lord have a pure heart. Gather accountability around you and pursue these things and get away from these other things. Going back to the Song of Solomon, and here's where we close. Verse 13. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrhs and aloes with all chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Let me tell you what's happening. She has put all kinds of spices on the bed, and they're rolling around all over the place, and spices are flying up all over the place, and they're enjoying this moment. And look at verse 16. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden and let its spices flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And at this moment, as poetically as only God can put it, he gives the fruit of the knowledge of intimacy. This couple has reached the point in their intimate relationship where both of them have been sexually satisfied. I've come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my milk. Do you notice, gentlemen, There isn't this great experience. And he goes. Remember what I said? Men are white microwaves. When it's done, it's done. Women are crockpots. It takes a while to cool down. And so he knows her. So he romances her after as well. Verse 2, and here's where we close. God speaks. Eat, O friends. Drink. Yes, drink deeply. O beloved ones. Can I remind you that God invented the birds and the beasts. He is the only authority that can speak into it. He created the human body. He created the male. He created the female. He created so that we can render affection to each other. We can't use sex to control. We use it to become one. It allows knowledge of communication and connection. It allows us the ability to understand our spouse like no other person in the world. Knowledge. God says, eat, drink, be blessed. What you're doing is exactly when, 
how and what I invented marriage for. Enjoy. Amen? Amen. Now, like I said, all of my single people, you drive home separately. All of my married people, <laughs> we'll deal with that on Wednesday. <laughs> Gentlemen, now remember, stay away from that your hair looks like a flock of goats. It's not going to go over in the 21st century, okay? And listen, <laughs> when she smiles, don't say, oh, wow, you got all your teeth, okay? Come up with your own ways to speak to your bride. Come up with your own my dove's eyes and you got your teeth and look at your hair. You develop your own. Solomon has his. Don't steal them. You come up with your own. Amen? Tony, you get none until, when's the wedding? May, right? Ooh, you got a long ways to go. Bah. Jesus, thank you so much for the Song of Solomon. I pray that you'd bless it. Blessed in our lives, blessed in our hearts, Lord. And I ask in Jesus' name that we would grow. The world has taken control and uses sex to sell. And I pray that the church would realize that you have given us this knowledge in the intimacy of marriage. And in that place, you bless it for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we all said, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.